Let's turn now uh, to God's Word, Psalm 16, page 453 of your pew Bible. We're going to continue our uh, summer series of Psalms, joy, the joy, uh, Psalms of Joy. As you can see, the, the title of this sermon for me is The Highest State of Happiness. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I preached from Psalm 1, where the first word of the psalm was blessed, which uh, can be translated a heightened state of happiness. And, we, and I exhorted us to try to see if we could live lives that followed that blessing of God to live as people who are in a heightened state, not of fear, not of anxiety, not of dread, but of happiness and what that could look like in our world. Well, as we're going to see today, there's actually a place where that heightened state of happiness can occur. And so it's the highest state of happiness we're going to look at today. So let's read Psalm 16, the entire psalm, and then we'll ask God's blessing to teach us on it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray and ask God to give us some insight this morning. Lord, I do pray that as we seek to understand what it means to live in your joy and your fullness of joy, I pray that this morning you would take us to that high place where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And he, in his presence, has fullness of this joy. Take us there, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we hope to accomplish in our, in our sermons here is, is certainly to exhort and exposit the passage that we're looking at and the text we are, but it's also to uh, set you up for the rest of the week so that you can study your Bibles and have a framework for what God might say to you each, each day and week and month and year of your life uh, one of the great things that came out of the Reformation was the, the priesthood of all believers, where you can actually go to the scriptures yourself, and God, through his spirit, can teach you. And that's one of our jobs as pastors, is to, is to help set that framework up. And so uh, there's a lot of passages that do that well for us. This is, this is one, because if you were listening well to, the, to when Jenny read the Acts 2 passage, Peter actually quotes Psalm 16 and applies it to Jesus. And later on in Acts, Acts 13, Paul does the same thing in one of his sermons. He quotes Psalm 16 and applies it to Jesus. And so when you talk about Bible interpretation, whenever you have an apostle or two take an Old Testament passage and weave it into his first century church sermon, we ought to per perk up and learn something about uh, that 
interpretive technique is that the, the, the scriptures in their totality were meant to point us to Jesus. Uh, there's for sure an immediate context, which we're going to see here in a minute, about David in this psalm. And then there's you know, sort of like, how does that fit for me question? Where do I find myself in that passage? Uh, and that's a question we'll look at. But ultimately, we have to be asking, where does this passage lead me to Jesus? And we'll, we'll see that as well. Because honestly, you know this feeling. How you think about your relationship to the scriptures, where you insert yourself can have catastrophic effects on your faith in a lot of different ways, or it can unleash power if you uh, see that properly. And so what I wanna do is I wanna set that lens up for us, and I'm gonna use an illustration that I've used before. So if you've you've heard me do this before, just count uh, repetition as one of the best teachers. Just learn it again in a fresh way. If you haven't heard this, then hopefully this will give you a lens to see the Bible, and particularly this Psalm 16 passage in some fresh light. And, this, and the illustration I'm gonna use is the story, the very famous story of David and Goliath. Everybody knows the story for the most part, inside the church and outside the church. All right, so let me give you the cliff note version of this story, and then I'll tell you how it's been mostly uh, interpreted and applied in the world and in the church. All right, so you got two armies. You got the Israelite army, who is the people of God, and you've got the Philistine army, who are the enemies of God, and they're fighting. They're in a war, and they're in a stalemate over this valley, and the Philistines have this mighty warrior named Goliath, who's nine feet tall and is is known for his brutality as a warrior. And they send him out into the middle of the battlefield, and he taunts Israel day and night. He taunts their God, he taunts their law, he taunts uh, uh, taunts their prophets. He's talking trash like crazy to the Israelites and, and, and baiting them to come fight him. Well, the Israelite soldiers are scared to death. They don't want to go fight Goliath. They, they don't want to get engaged in, the, in a confrontation with this large, brutal warrior. Well, David, who's a shepherd boy, a teenage boy, is tending his flock. And his dad says, we take food to your brothers. He had six brothers that were on the front lines of this war. And so David takes the food to his brothers, and he hears Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. He says, hey, what are we doing? God promised to give us victory over this land. Why are we letting this this pagan taunt us like this. Who's gonna go fight him? And they're all like, David, you don't understand. This guy's brutal. He's a, he's a large enemy. He's killed lots of people. We don't wanna fight him. We gotta find another way. David says, well, I'll go. And David takes his five river rocks and his slingshot, and he walks out there in his shepherd outfit, and he says, hey, buddy, your day's come to an end. I'm here to tell you a different story. I believe the promises of God. His gonna come true today. Takes his slingshot, slings it, hits Goliath right in the head. Goliath falls down. David takes Goliath's own sword, cuts off Goliath's head, and holds it up, and Israel has a resounding victory over the Philistine army that day. Got the picture. Okay. Here's how this story is predominantly interpreted and applied both in the church and out. This Friday night, the little county football team is going to head over on its one-legged bus, and it's going to go over to the big city school, and it's going to fight the large public school there in a battle on the gridiron of a David and Goliath proportions. But that little county school has worked hard this week, and they're ready. They've got their five rocks and their slingshots, and they're ready to go. They're going to show up in courage and faith and resilience, and they're going to tackle that Goliath football team that's been such a nemesis for so many years. And the coach has got a wonderful speech told the players to have courage. We can do this. We've worked harder than them. We've got God on our side. They'll all say the Lord's Prayer, and they'll go out there, and David will fight Goliath. 
or some other large enemy that you don't think you can accomplish, you're instructed, just go be David. You should have the faith of David. You should have the courage of David. You should be prepared like David. You should have a weapon like David. You should be, you should be skilled in your art to go and tackle Goliath. There's two problems with that interpretation. One, that's not the purpose of that story at all in the Bible. You are not to insert yourself as David in that passage. You are to insert yourself as Israel in fear and cowering and dread, being attacked by an enemy that you cannot overcome, and God, in his rich mercy, sends a deliverer on your behalf to fight for you. David is a foreshadow of Christ. And you are to rest that God sent the deliverer on your behalf. And it wasn't you. It was somebody else. But the second problem with that interpretation is this. What if I'm not courageous? What if I'm not strong? What if I don't have good river rocks? What if my slingshot is broken? What if I can't withstand this enemy? Is there no hope for me? If you're telling me I'm supposed to be David, what if I can't? What if I'm not able? What if cancer has so got me? What if my kid's behavior is so overwhelming? What if my sin is so overwhelming? What if I just can't? I have no Messiah then. I have no deliverer because you've told me I'm the deliverer. That is really problematic. And many of you have suffered under that guilt and that shame because you've been told your whole Christian life, you are to be David. Strap it up, get working, get busy, get better, try harder, have more faith, be more courageous, and you just know I'm not able to do that. Friends, there's good news. That's not the interpretation. When you're weak, he is strong. When you're powerless, he comes and he delivers you. So I hope that you'll see as we put that lens on how Psalm 16 can actually be very edifying. Because I was talking to somebody at the end of the first service. And in just a minute, we're gonna read, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What if they haven't fallen for you? What if you're right now in a place that the lines aren't pleasant, that you don't see a beautiful inheritance? Does this Psalm not fit you? It might not right now, but if you will apply it to one who has it eternally, you do have a blessed inheritance. There will be fullness of joy at his right hand. So let's see what we can learn from this with that lens. Because friends, listen, this is good news. Second Timothy 3 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training, for reproof and correction so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good. We believe that. We believe that we can learn from the scriptures. Sure, it's a good, wise principle that you should be ready for the battle. You should have courage and faith. You should have a weapon that's ready. All those principles that we teach about David, sure, but they're not ultimate. They're not ultimate. You will fail. The weapons will let you down. Christ will never let you down. Jesus told the, told the Pharisees, who were the most schooled and learned people in the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that speak of me, yet you refuse to come to me for life. You remember the, uh, uh, Philip, the, the queen of Ethiopia had come into Jerusalem and her, eunuch, uh, her chariot driver was reading Isaiah 53. And uh, Philip heard him reading. He's like, hey man, you, you know what you're reading? He's like, how can I? I don't know any of this stuff. So Philip climbs up in the chariot and, 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 and the guy asks a great question. He said, hey, in this you know, Psalm, Isaiah 53, is he talking about himself or somebody else? 
And Philip says, hey, from here and on, let me just tell you that that passage and every other passage is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. And then Jesus himself, on the, way, on the road to Emmaus, is talking to those two guys who are talking about the affairs of the week. And, he said, and Luke tells us that starting with Moses and all the prophets, he spoke to them about the scriptures concerning himself. So let's assume that that's what Psalm 16 is supposed to say, is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. But there's an immediate context for David. There's a personal context of how you might look at that. And then there's an ultimate context of how we apply it to Jesus. Let's, so let's put that lens on and look at Psalm 16. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The tenses of these words here indicate that this was a present crisis that David was in. David was the king of Israel. You can just imagine the crises he was having. Financial, geopolitical. Uh, he, had, he had his own uh, prodigy wanting to take over his throne. <laughs> he had problems. And here, he is asking God to preserve him. Or some of your translations may say, keep me safe, O God. He's, uh, most commentators call this Psalm 16 a psalm of confidence, that David is appealing to have confidence in the Lord. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my list. A more lips. On a, a more literal translation of this, it says, To the saints in the land that are God's excellent ones, I say this. And that's when he says the thing about the sorrows. What is he talking about here with the sorrows of those who run after another God? In, in, in David's day, this was, this was a very contextual temptation. What was going on in David's day was what is called syncretism. Syncretism was the blurring of the teachings of Yahweh with the teachings of Baal. And these people in Israel were blurring those. They were, they were, they were uh, dipping in to the teachings of Yahweh, a sacrificial system, and the pagan practices of the, of the gods of Baal. And so David here is saying, I'm not going to give myself into that temptation of the people around me. So Lord, preserve me. You are my portion. I'm not going to give into this temptation. Can you relate to that? God, I'm going through this. I need you to keep me safe. I need you to preserve me. The syncretism of our world, mingling of pagan practices with godly practices, mingling of the holy with the profane, it's all around us. This was what was happening to David. Verse 5 and 6. He comes back to his confidence. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is an interesting passage because he chooses three words that, that are very important here. He says, the Lord is my portion, the Lord is my cup, and he holds my lot. We're gonna, I'm going I'm to really open this up when we get to the table here in just a second. But the idea of portion here was the idea of sustenance or bread. God is his sustenance. You are my portion. What, when, I, when I eat of your word and of your will, I'm, nur I'm satisfied. Uh, Jesus, Jesus would say this. I, the will, uh, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. The prophets used to speak of eating the word of God as a sustenance, a portion. The cup. The cup is the cup of blessing. Uh, the prophets used to say, my cup overflows, that God has given me um, a blessing and my cup is overflowing. He is saying that the Lord is my portion and my cup. And then the lot has to do with the land. 
the promised land. God had promised land to his people that where their feet went, that was where their land was. So David is saying, the lines of this lot have fallen for me in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance. He's reminding himself of how God has blessed him and shown him his promises. That's a good practice too, isn't it? We can do that. When I'm in a downtrodden time, when I'm feeling the pressures, I can be reminded of God's portion, of his cup, of the land that he intends to give me. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. This confidence that he has of not being shaken is rooted in the counsel that he says he receives at night as his heart Instruction. Now, this is fascinating. This will give you a great picture of why a contextualized understanding of the scriptures is so critical. The word that is translated here in English, heart, is actually the Hebrew word for kidneys. Now, read it that way. In the night, my kidneys instruct me. We all laughed. I was like, kidneys? Isn't that where you go to the bathroom? Like, That didn't sound, but to the Hebrew culture and what they understood in that day was the kidneys, was the the gut feeling, that place that originated all of their heart motivation. For whatever reason, and there's lots, you can go research it, they applied that to the kidneys. Well, we, we laugh because we know heart makes sense. The heart is where it flows out for us. In a few dozen years, it's gonna be the brain, right? The brain is where it all, it's just, but the point is there's something internal in me that this God instructs me internally that's deeper than just the stuff out here. It's coming up from within me. But then that give you a picture? It's like, well, this is what the Hebrews, they thought it was the kidneys. We translate it heart. The whole same purpose is God instructs at your deepest, inmost being. And when you anchor yourself there, you won't be shaken. All right, then, verse nine and through 11. And this is the part where the apostles apply it to Jesus. Therefore, the end of the, the, the conclusion of the matter, of me asking for God's protection, me not giving myself to temptation, me reminding myself of my portion and my cup and my land, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, David, as Peter and Paul both say in their sermons, guys, David died. His grave is right over there. We know where he is. So when he says, you will not abandon your, my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption, that was momentary for David. In that crisis, he did not, God did not let him see corruption or decay, but he did ultimately see corruption and decay. His bones were rotting. And what they flip is, but the greater David, who did suffer and went through the death of the cross and was buried, he now is alive. He did not see corruption. He did not see uh, his soul abandoned to Sheol. And what the apostles are saying is, he's the better David. What David was not able to do in the weakness of his flesh, God did through his spirit by raising Jesus from the dead. And then notice 
the words, at your right hand are pleasures forever. Listen to Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Where did the resurrected David go? To the right hand of the throne of majesty. Therefore, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forever. In a couple of weeks, we're going to, after we finish this summer series on the Psalms, we're going we're gonna to preach the high priestly prayer, John 17, which is going to be really fun. You know, earlier we, we listened to Jesus teach us to pray with the Lord's Prayer, and now we're going to see him actually praying. And he, he prayed for you. Do you know that? In that prayer, he, he prayed for you. Listen, listen to this. He says, Father, I do not ask for these only, the 12 that were there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, you and me that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. What Jesus is teaching here is the great doctrine of union with Christ. Because when you are in Christ, everything the Father intends to give his Son is yours. If you come out from that and try to be your own David, you will not get the promises for the Son. So the great fight of our faith is to stay in Christ. So when you are in Christ, All the promises of God have their yes and their amen because they're yours in him. In the fall, after we preach the high priestly prayer, we're gonna preach Philippians, which I can't wait for either. We're gonna see the whole book of Philippians. And it's loaded with in Christ teaching. Listen to this one. Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You want to be raised with Christ? Live your life in Christ today. What a doctrine. To be united with Christ in his death means the death of myself, the death of trying to win the battle on my own, the death of trying to survive in a world that is full of evil, but to live by faith under the protection of Christ. So the applications are simple. First, I have, to, I, have to, I have to appeal to you for this. Are you in Christ? Some of you have been in church your whole life and you've been working real hard to obey God and be your own David. Hear me imploring you this morning, stop striving for that. Trust Christ. He has done the work. The great hymn writer said the only fitness he requires is you feel your need for him. For those of us that are in Christ, please remember, your work is to believe. That's it. 
to find yourself repeatedly inserting yourself in Christ. There you have a portion. There you have an inheritance. There you have power in Christ alone. One of the books that shaped me early in my Christian life is this book called The Necessity of Prayer by E.M. Bounds. I commend it to you if you want to read it. But the very first chapter on prayer and faith, he, gives it, he tells a story of a friend of his. Uh, uh, the friend is A.C. A. Dixon, another theologian. But he says that this, this, this friend was a hunter. And one day he was out hunting, and he noticed a large commotion coming from the woods. And it was the, the sound of barking hunting dogs, hounds, that were chasing a, a, baby, a baby deer, a fawn. And he could see this deer frantically bouncing back and forth, trying to get away from these dogs. And he came running towards this hunter on his land. And he, the, the, the deer stopped a few feet from the, the man. And you could tell the deer was in sort of a, a dilemma. I've got these ravaging hounds coming on me, and I've got this scary human kind of in front of me. What am I going to do? Well, in an act of desperation, the, the fawn just jumps in between the, the legs and arms of this man. And the man picked up the, the deer. And this is what he said. Just then, I felt that all the dogs in the West could not and would not capture that fawn after its weakness had appealed to my strength. So it is when human helplessness appeals to Almighty God. I remember well when the hounds of sin were after my soul that at last I ran into the arms of the Almighty. Amen, right? When you read Psalm 16, there's a lot there that in times you can, you can bank on, you can trust. But hear me saying, in those moments when you can't, you have one that did ultimately. And you can jump into the arms of the Almighty and rest in his power. And he will give you an inheritance. At his right hand are pleasures forever. We're gonna come to the table. And I told you that I would refer back to this this is incredible that this, the, the, the whole counsel of God kind of leads us to this, right? Jesus, the night when he, we're gonna say this, in the night where he took bread, which is the portion, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. This is mere portion. And then he gave us a cup. When, when you are weak and aren't able to do all that I have commanded, I've given you my blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins. I forgive you. And he says, and I'm not going to eat this with you until I come back and I give you the lot. <laughs> the land is yours. And so when we come to this table, it is Psalm 16 in taste and see mode. Taste the portion that is yours in the body of Christ. Drink all of the cup of his forgiveness because it doesn't run out. As far as the curse is found, he has come to make, make known his blessings. And Christian, the lion's and the boundaries have fallen to you in pleasant places. You have a glorious inheritance. The land that God has given is yours. And when King Jesus is reigning on his throne eternally, we will reign with him as kingdom, as kings and priests to our God forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. We'll come to the Lord's table and taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll transition us to the Lord's prayer as well. So, Father, we, we receive this teaching because it comes directly from your mouth. Not only from the mouth of David as he penned this during his day, but through the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter as they preached the resurrection, we hear them saying, this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, did not see decay. He rose from the dead. 
has triumphed over our worst enemy, death, and given us victory over sin. And so, Lord, I pray that today all of us would be found in Christ. Lord, now, because you prayed for us those, those days and you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory forever.